0: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your
1: host, Mike Adams. And hello everyone, welcome to Adams on Agriculture on this Thanksgiving Day. Happy Thanksgiving everyone. Certainly not the the type of Thanksgiving that we're used to. Things have changed a lot with COVID-19. But hope that you are safe and that you're able to still at least be in some contact with uh, friends and loved ones one way or the other, and have a good, safe holiday. It's been a tough year, a lot of uh, a lot of bad news in 2020, but uh, still plenty of things to be thankful for and hope that you were able to share those with uh, friends and uh, relatives on this special holiday. And on this special edition of Adams on Agriculture on Thanksgiving Day, we're gonna go back and replay some of the uh, recent conversations we've had. Uh, including a conversation just recently with Brock Slayball with the National Rural Health Association, an update on how our rural health system is dealing with this uh, recent surge in COVID cases. And also we'll hear from Carrie Calvert with Feeding America, as she'll talk about the challenge of uh, feeding the food insecure during a pandemic and going into the holiday season. But first, my conversation with Beth Breeding with the National Turkey Federation, as we take a look at turkey supply this uh, Thanksgiving and the turkey industry.
2: As you can imagine, uh, turkeys are in the stores. Consumers are purchasing them actually a little bit earlier this year than they have in the past. And um, we expect for there to be a lot of demand but enough supply.
1: How has COVID impacted your industry? Has there been a disruption in, in the supply chain? Any problems uh, because of COVID?
2: You know, I think, like a lot of folks in the the uh, processing industry, the meat and poultry industry, we certainly have had some some challenges this year. Um, you know, I'm really proud of our our member companies and our, our turkey producers. I think that they were able to quickly adjust and, um, you know, do what needed to be done to keep workers healthy and safe and minimize plant downtime. Um, But we're certainly taking the lessons that are learned from this year into next year and how we can improve the supply chain.
1: Obviously, the holidays are going to be different for everyone because of COVID. Uh, Do you expect that to increase demand for turkey this holiday season, or what impact do you think that would have?
2: Right, that's the million dollar question. But no, I mean, we're, we anticipate strong demand for this holiday season. Um, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of folks who are having a smaller gathering, which makes sense given some of the health concerns. Um, so we think we're actually gonna see more people cooking at home this year than we do in the past. So, I, you know, I'm expecting uh, demand to, to be, you know, pretty steady, if not greater than last year.
1: That is one of the things that has uh, come out of this uh, pandemic, that is people eating more meals at home. And so maybe some were, some maybe are trying to cook that turkey uh, this (laughs) holiday season for the first time. So it might be a learning experience.
2: Oh, yeah. We're expecting a lot of first-timers this year for, for turkey preparation and the Thanksgiving meal in general. You know, maybe they are used to traveling to a large family gathering and just bringing a side dish and not the, the whole meal. So, um, you know, we are making sure that resource, resources are available for those first-timers. Uh, we've got a Thanksgiving 101 resource on eatturkey.org where folks can go and, and get the tips on how to do a smaller scale meal, maybe a Zoom giving if they're they're doing a virtual meal. Um, But also that traditional whole bird, that's great, as well as some really delicious leftover, leftovers ideas. But um, you know, it's cooking a turkey, I think often looks a lot more challenging than it is, but it can be super, super simple.
1: Kind of give us a state of the industry, Beth. Uh, how is the uh, the turkey business? Uh, uh, are you seeing more people get into the business, or are you losing some growers? Uh, kind of give us an update.
2: Yeah, you know, I think it's been um, an interesting year, for sure, um, just trying to... Gauge demand and market conditions is, is tough enough. And when you add a, a global pandemic into the mix, it, it, it gets incredibly challenging. But um, I think it's been a relatively steady year for us. You know, we we've had um, had seen some increased sales of turkey at retail, um, but of course, some pretty significant losses of, of um, business and food service with restaurant closures and venue closures. So, um, I think that we're going to see how things shake out at the end of the year after this holiday season. But our growers have been out on the farm um, every single day, doing what they do best, taking care of their flocks and um, it's been great to see how they've adapted to to this and made sure that folks will have turkey on the table.
1: Yeah, that's been a big challenge uh, for those in the food industry, uh, especially in the protein sector. With that shift away from a lot of the uh, restaurant, the food service business, more mm-hmm. to the retail, uh, How do you, you feel that your industry has been able to adapt to that all right?
2: You know, I know that um, some folks have have had to to make some changes uh, to reflect that, um, you know, maybe skipping a a flock or something like that to allow things to kind of even out a little bit with supply. But I think for the most part, uh, we've been able to adjust and to innovate and to uh, continue to um, have a, a strong and healthy turkey industry. And we're just really looking forward to a new year, you might say.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of us are. Certainly, the holiday season is is a big time of year for for your industry. But really, uh, I know you you've really worked hard to have that strong demand throughout the year.
2: Definitely, yeah. No, I mean, the holiday season is certainly what we call our Super Bowl. But you know, turkey is really popular throughout the year, and we've been working hard to promote that. Um, You know, particularly when it comes to convenient family meals like ground turkey at night or barbecue and grilling. Um, So, you know, this is a busy time, but there's really no time of year that isn't busy uh, for this industry.
1: Yeah, really, people staying at home, cooking more at home, that has probably um, given you some opportunities to introduce uh, turkey or some different turkey products or different cookie dishes that maybe they wouldn't have thought of otherwise.
2: Yeah, you know, that is one opportunity that has come out of of COVID is folks who are cooking more at home who who did pick up a pack of ground turkey or a turkey tenderloin or something at the grocery store and um, have been consuming more turkey this year than before. Um, We see that as an opportunity to maybe reinforce some of those cooking and shopping habits that they um you know learned during the pandemic and a lot of people say that they're going to continue to cook at home they really liked it they like the family time together and having control over their meals so um, we want to see them putting turkey in their shopping carts year-round
1: all right what's that website they can go to for turkey tips
2: yeah it's EatTurkey.org. pretty simple <laughs> but pretty much everything you need there for your holiday feast um, lots of great recipe ideas
1: all right, that is Beth Breeding, Vice President, Communications and Marketing for the National Turkey Federation. Well, it, uh, it won't be the same for a lot of folks, but we certainly wish everyone a very uh, happy and safe holiday season. And, Beth, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thank you, and Happy Thanksgiving to everybody, and thanks for supporting America's Turkey Farmers.
1: All right, stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Sinex Premium Diesel. With Sinex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture.
1: Now, back to Mike Adams. As we see another surge in uh, coronavirus cases across the country, we want to get an update on how the national rural health care system is is holding up with these uh, new cases and reports that we're hearing about shortage of hospital beds and things like that. Joining us is Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. Brock, thank you for joining us. Give us an update. Uh, I know it's different in different parts of the country, but overall, how is the system holding up? <laughs>
0: Well, thank you, Mike. It's good to be on your show today. I am afraid to report that we're seeing some really stressed uh, health care systems right now, both in rural and urban parts of our country. Uh, we are seeing uh, occupancy rates of 90% or more in our ICUs. Uh, many states are reporting their uh, intensive care units being full and much over capacity. I will comment quickly that uh, we have more than 18 states now that have uh, 10% of their hospital patients being uh, treated for COVID. Uh, This puts us into a surge level of uh, staffing and demand, and this creates some real stress on the healthcare system in general and in rural areas specifically.
1: What are the biggest challenges right now? Lack of bed space, uh, lack of workers, uh, what is the situation then?
3: Well, as we
0: say, uh, you have to have space, staff, and stuff to run a hospital operation. Uh, You've got the beds, and if you may have the uh, stuff, the uh, personal protective equipment and the supplies, if you don't have the staff, all of that is completely useless, so we're seeing uh, not only are we short in supply for workforce in rural communities, uh, we're seeing the infection of some of our employees, which is taking them out of commission uh, for being able to serve patients, which just, which certainly um, adds to the complication of our administrators trying to uh, deal with this crisis.
1: Are some parts of the country? in in tougher shape than others? I mean, we see the surge seemingly happening in, in a number of states. What areas are hardest hit right now for the rural healthcare system?
0: Well, we're seeing uh, some tremendous um, uh, outbreak in the upper Midwest, uh, all the way from Wisconsin over through Minnesota into the Dakotas and um, Nebraska, Colorado. And so these are states that are seeing some significant uh, demand in uh, COVID, uh, COVID treatment. And we uh, part of the problem that that's creating is our rural hospitals don't have upline hospitals to transfer to. So once you come in uh, to the facility, uh, it's taking as long as four to six hours uh, to get a patient transferred uh, to a larger city for intensive care. Uh, which just only serves to heighten the anxiety that everybody feels around the situation we're dealing with.
1: What are the options that these hospitals have? Uh, they've got people coming in needing care, what can they do? <clears throat> well,
0: they're doing the best they can and I'm really proud of our rural providers uh, who, are, who are trying to uh, triage patients, making sure that only those that are really needing care are admitted to hospital uh, trying to do as much uh, with patients at home as possible to to kind of keep the demand away uh, from the hospital itself so so those are some of the techniques that they're using. Um, and of course, we would love to see uh, more control of the virus that, uh, so that we don't infect more people that create further demand down the road so uh, So that's another strategy, of course, that uh, we're we're looking at trying to implement uh, quickly.
1: We're talking with Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. Brock, are are we better prepared, though, this time than when it happened earlier in the year? I mean, do you have the ventilators and PPEs, things like that?
0: Well, we we have uh, enough ventilators. Uh, Again, it takes people to run those, so that's where we have usually the limiting factor. We also have... um, enough PPE at the moment, although we're seeing some spot outages of that uh, in certain parts of the country, but it's not as widespread as it was earlier. Um, I think that where we're just seeing now where the before, back in the summer and spring, we saw in rural areas, most of the outbreak concentrated in uh, nursing homes and meatpacking plants and other places where people had, and and prisons. Um, Now we're seeing that this is different in the moment now because it's all community generated so uh, these are outbreaks that are occurring in the community and uh, it's being spread throughout the community which creates that uh, that demand that we're seeing right now
1: what what can be done I mean what do you need most Do you need help from the government Do you need what do you need most right now
0: right now what we need is uh, obviously uh, the good news that we're hearing on the Uh, vaccine that's imminent in terms of release and implementation. Uh, We're dealing now with the logistical issues of getting this vaccine uh, through the emergency youth authorization phase and then getting it uh, so that we can get needles in the arms as soon as possible. Um, and that, I think, uh, if we can hold on for five months uh, about, then we can get the general population all inoculated against this disease. And I'm really encouraged about the 90 to 95% effectiveness rate of the vaccine. What a tremendous um, uh, entry into this situation that we have. Until then, though, we're really going to have to focus on face coverings, avoiding large gatherings, Uh, get that flu vaccine as soon as possible, and if you're feeling unwell, make sure that you stay home. Those are the biggest things we can do right now to prevent this uh, spread until we get to the vaccine phase.
1: So we've talked about full hospitals. Let's talk about fewer hospitals. Have we lost more this year?
0: Yeah, Mike, we've uh, lost a hospital in Georgia this last week, uh, or week before last now, so we're up to 17 this year in 2020, and then uh, that's up to 133 uh, since 2010. So uh, this is another unfortunate side effect of what's going on in our uh, healthcare system and the challenges it presents to rural uh, rural hospitals, which is which is certainly extraordinary right now.
1: I was going to say, even once we get past COVID, I mean, will the financial situation you think? cause more closures for some of these rural hospitals? Well,
0: that's a great question, Mike. I tell people that uh, we got some money through the provider relief funds that Congress um, and the president uh, put into effect with the CARES Act back uh, in the in the summer and late spring, and we're implementing some of those provider relief funds now, but it's like I would say that's like uh, the patient is in the intensive care, and we just gave them... Uh, a shock uh, electric shock to reverse the heart attack but nevertheless the patient is still in intensive care so we are very much uh, looking to uh, try to do what we can uh, with the incoming administration and congress the new congress the 117th congress to pass legislation that will help rural hospitals
1: a- absolutely You're talking about the staffing shortages. Earlier in the year, hospitals were laying people off because they weren't able to do elective surgeries and things like that. So now you have a shortage. Uh, Were those people brought back for the most part, or were they still permanently laid off? What's the situation there? Well,
0: those were temporary uh, temporary layoffs uh, because when the pandemic first started back in March of this year, uh, we saw... The uh, spread mostly in urban areas in the east and west coast. And so in the broad center of the country where many of our rural communities are, uh, we didn't have any COVID, uh, outed, uh, COVID outbreak, which is great. I mean, we're certainly not complaining about that. But CMS and CDC, the C- Centers for Disease Control, uh, recommended and required that we shut down all elective and non-emergent services and this created um, a hollowing out of all of the business in our rural hospitals. The hallways were empty. The clinics were empty. And so this presented a real problem for our patients and uh, for our providers to be able to financially uh, sustain themselves. So that's why the provider relief funds were so important. Um, it helped to uh, offset some of the loss that these providers were feeling so that they can keep the Um, the employees uh, uh, whole during this period of time. Also, the Paycheck Protection Program was another important uh, uh, entry into the ability for rural hospitals to stay Mm -hmm. solvent during that that, uh, period of time as well.
1: Difficult times indeed. Brock, thank you for the update.
0: Well, you're welcome, and thanks for having me.
1: All right, we'll stay in touch. Brock Slayball, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams.
1: It is always a huge challenge trying to provide food for the food insecure, but in a year where you have COVID, it's been even a greater challenge. Let's talk about it as we are in the holiday season with Kerry Calvert, Managing Director, Nutrition and Ag Government Relations for Feeding America. Kerry, thank you for joining us again. Give us an overview of, uh, of the challenges uh, that groups like yours are facing trying to help people in need.
4: Great. Well, thanks for having me on the show again. I appreciate it and appreciate um, the, the time you take to connect your listeners with what's happening in the community. So uh, you're right. Uh, holiday time of year is, is always a stressful time for people that are food insecure. This year with an uh, unprecedented pandemic, uh, that challenge is even greater. You know, um, we've certainly seen – uh, some communities uh, have an economic rebound since March, but uh, our food banks on average are facing a 60% increase in demand, and, you know, 30 to 40% of the people that are coming to us have never needed to seek out food assistance before. So there's a lot of people that are still struggling in our community and, you know, are, are eager to find a job that will help them make ends meet but aren't able to.
1: Okay, let me go over those numbers again that you just gave. Sixty percent increase in demand for f- food assistance, and thirty to forty percent of those people are seeking help for the first time. Is that right?
4: That's right. That's right. Um, you know, we saw this a little bit in the 2008 recession as well. A lot of people that um, you know had a had a stable job saw it. Uh, disappeared during that economic downturn, and really from 2008 to 2010, we saw food insecurity increase dramatically. Um, With the the pandemic, what we found is instead of a a slow build as the 2008 recession was all at once, you know, you had so many people that were filing for unemployment and seeking assistance. Uh, We've been surveying our food bank network uh, since March, and keeping track of how demand is rising and falling. Um, So some months it's been a little bit less, but uh, we're seeing an uptick in demand for assistance again as uh, some of the assistance that's been provided by Congress has run out. Um, You know, some of the jobs just aren't returning, or some people were working and are finding themselves newly unemployed.
1: How much help are you getting i mean are you seeing an increase in giving
4: we have um you know people in this country are, are so generous and certainly we have seen that come through um which has been extremely gratifying to see you know um individuals companies communities are really coming together to to try to do what they can and that's been um really helpful i think the the uh, worrying part is that it's uh, not enough on its own to be able to keep up with the increased demand. Some of the initial assistance that Congress is able to provide, you know, for feeding programs, things like that, has really made a difference. So we're very hopeful that um, Congress will uh, focus on additional relief for people that are struggling soon to help us uh, meet that demand you know, um addressing food insecurity is something that um at its strongest we see that both, you know, our government, whether it's local, state or federal, um, you know, nonprofits like ours and other community organizations, and um, you know, individual citizens and um the private sector can really work together to make a difference on.
1: We're talking with Kerry Calvert with Feeding America carry across the country some schools back in session others are not and we know that it's a lot of children are dependent on those school feeding programs where does that stand and how has that impacted the overall uh issue that we're talking about here of food insecurity yeah it's been
4: you're exactly right it's been a real challenge for for families um you know some schools are open, some are closed, or some may be open and then need to close as you know quarantines or numbers in their communities rise. So, um, you know, USDA and Congress have, have given the, the school lunch program some flexibility to make it easier to give kids the school meals they'd normally get in school, but we know it, it's just not able to reach everyone, and that's putting additional strain on families. Um, the additional flexibility to... Um, you know, allow parents to pick up meals for the kids at the school for the entire week or the pandemic EDT cards that states have been distributing that basically puts the the funds that um, for free and reduced price lunch on a card so that families can um, go to the store and buy lunch for their kids, go to the grocery store and buy food for those kids. That's really helped as well. Um, But At the end of the day, there's still uh, quite an additional burden on families across the country that are trying to get nutritious meals for their kids.
1: You know, I am just thinking about that number we talked about earlier, 30 to 40% uh, of of the uh, people seeking help are doing it for the first time. Those would probably be a lot of people that before this maybe had been donors, contributors, right? And now they're seeking help.
4: Right. We've, we've definitely seen that dynamic play out in communities. And, uh, you know, one of the things that our food banks have been trying to do is to let people know what resources are there for them. You know, whether it's um, resources the food bank is able to help them with, such as you know, distributing food to them, or uh, helping, con- helping make sure they know about programs their kids might be eligible for, such as free lunch, or uh, helping them with uh, apply for SNAP benefits. You know, these resources are there to help people when they fall in hard times. So we want to increase awareness of all of the assistance that is out there um, while we can.
1: So, Carrie, uh, people that are hearing this and, and, and want to help, what's the best way? Obviously, they can send a check to Feeding America. That's helpful. What else can they do?
4: Thank you for asking that. So, um, yeah, there's so many ways that people can help. Um, so food banks and food pantries are always in need of pantry staple items to be donated, especially things that are shelf stable, that can be, you know, packed in, you know, a a grocery box, um, for, for safe, low contact distribution, um, We encourage people to uh, reach out to their local food bank to find out what their current needs are if you go to feedingamerica.org we have a a state and a zip code location that you can use to find information for your local food bank most food banks also have a list of all the pantries and areas they serve on their website so you can really um, choose to engage very locally i think that's a great way um to to do that i mean I Work for Feeding America and still with, with my family and our community, we look for ways to engage locally as well because, um, and nationally because it, it really does, um, you know, make such a difference and come together as a community. So, go to feedingamerica.org and uh, enter your zip code or your state and find the food bank near you to get involved. Um, you know, donations of food are always, always, always welcome. Food banks also need volunteers. Uh, they, we've Um, worked with the CDC and health authorities to put together protocols to ensure that we can keep our staff safe, the people that we're serving safe, and also to keep volunteers safe. So, um, you know, check to see if the food bank in your area is in need of volunteers. Uh, Many of them are doing uh, social distanced, outdoor um, or indoor, very distanced with masks, Um, masks. you know, packing events so that they can prepare all the food boxes to be ready for uh, food distributions. So that's another great way to get involved as well.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you, because of COVID concerns, is it harder to get volunteers to come help?
4: It has been. It has been. In fact, in a number of states, the National Guard has been playing a vital role in um, helping food banks Uh, both pack food and distribute it. You know, a lot of um, the food pantries that work with our food banks, many of them are entirely volunteer run. A lot of them are staffed by uh, seniors. So so not all of our pantries are able to uh, be open all the time, depending on what the, um, you know, the pandemic is looking like in their community at at the time. So as uh, local situations change, food banks have really needed to rely on volunteers or assistance from the National Guard to help make sure they can get the food out to people that need it.
1: Well, the needs there year-round, especially in a year like this, but I think uh, a lot of times around the holidays, the people's thoughts turn to that maybe a little bit more. So uh, hopefully, there, we'll see a big push here uh, during the holidays that will really help.
4: Well, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate having the time to come on your show today, and to let your readers know what they can do to help out. And I know many of them, most likely already have been very involved, and it really helps make such a difference in communities nationwide. So, uh, thank you for all the help that your your listeners have already provided, and uh, thank you in advance to to all future future help that they're able to. Um, it definitely is put to good use.
1: What's your website again?
4: Uh, people can go to feedingamerica.org and they can find their local food bank near them to get involved.
1: Yeah, we encourage people to do that. Carrie, thank you very much.
4: Thank you. Bye-bye. Car-
1: Carrie Calvert with Feeding America. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams.
1: Well, harvest may be over, but that means winter is uh, fast on its way. And while you and your equipment both deserve some rest and relaxation after another busy season, it's very important not to close up shop too soon. In other words, preparing your machines for winter while it can be an easily overlooked job, it's a very critical step to take to make sure that they're protected over the cold months ahead. Talking today with Tanner Entfeld, a premium lubricants expert from the Synex brand, we're going to talk about small but still important maintenance tasks farmers should perform on equipment before settling in for winter. All right, so Tanner, why is it so important to give attention to your equipment's lubricants before winter hits?
3: Yeah, good morning, Mike. So, after the rush of harvest, with all the hard work you've put in, it's tempting to call it a wrap. But your equipment and its lubricants have been worked hard, too. That oil may have been in use since spring planting through summer field work and into fall harvest, and maybe some tillage work even got done this fall. It's a good time to drain it. You know, just like an athlete has a post workout routine, so should your equipment. No matter what engine manufacturer, condensation occurs when an engine starts cold, then warms up the operating temperature. It likely endures high pressure and heat along the way. Most equipment on the farm is used in the dirt. Engine designs are good. However, dirt can still get in through small spaces. Oil is designed to put up with dirt and water to a certain extent. However, the only way to get it out completely is to drain it and replenish with fresh new oil.
1: Okay, let's kind of go through a checklist here. What should farmers do to prepare their equipment for winter?
3: One of the first things, perform a loop scan or used oil analysis. You can catch small issues before they get worse as equipment sits still. We've seen it many times where a simple lube scan can save lots of money in the long run by catching those small things first. We like to think of it as a blood test on your body. It's a true way to find out what's happening inside of that engine. There are many myths about conventional versus synthetic oil. It's proven synthetic has better properties. So replacing engine oil with a quality synthetic lubricant can ensure no contaminants are left inside causing wear and corrosion. As we talked earlier, it's important to change your oil in the fall as any remaining dirt or water could erode those engine walls and its, and its components. Again, oil is formulated with additives to disperse contaminants that may get in. Now is a good time to drain and refill with fresh oil to ensure those unwatered particles get out. Then another step is to check hydraulic fluid. Drain and refill as needed or top off those hydraulic tanks. More air equals more opportunity for condensation to get in, which can cause corrosion as well. And then finally, grease-moving parts. Even if they're sitting still, corrosion can still occur. Senex has a wide array of synthetics from diesel engine oil to hydraulics to grease.
1: Yeah, that's good information, good reminders. Any final tips before winter sets in?
3: You know, we just like to use quality synthetic products that are built to withstand the harsh winter environments we face. Um, Synthetic-based oils have uniform molecules that can make it more stable against water and dirt penetration. Naturally, it's a better cold flow improver. It keeps the fluid moving freely in the cold. Synthetic lubricants also stand up better to wider temperature ranges, to the bitter cold, to the very hot conditions that they may see. Senex maxron diesel engine oils run smart. They provide superior clean engine protection in all weather conditions. Senex diesel engine oils are also built with EnduroVis, which imp- improves two areas. Superior viscosity control, which, help, which helps maintain the oil's viscosity while protecting your engine. And then secondly, it provides seven times more shear stability compared to the competitive oils. Given this information, we ask you to use Cenex lubricants this
1: fall. So make sure that uh, you take the steps now to protect your equipment through the wintertime and be ready to go next spring. Uh, finally, for anyone who's looking to learn more, where can they go to get more information? A good place
3: to start is to visit us at www.cenex.com to learn more and find your local Cenex dealer. Synex.com is also a good place to find more information about our Synex lubricants and other energy products we offer.
1: That's Tanner Entfeld, a premium lubricants expert from the Synex brand, talking about the important things that you need to do to protect your equipment before settling in for the winter to make sure that that equipment's protected and will be operating uh, at the uh, top efficiency come next spring when you get it back out. Tanner, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Mike. The American Farm Bureau Federation has conducted its 35th annual survey of items found on the Thanksgiving Day dinner table. And we take a look at the price of those items. How they compare with years past. Joining us is John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, thanks for joining us again. What did this year's survey find?
5: Well, this year, Mike, we had volunteer shoppers both in-store and online uh, across the country. We responses from all 50 states found that the average price... Uh, This year's classic Thanksgiving dinner came in at $46.90. That's down 4% from what we saw last year in the lowest level that we've seen since 2010.
1: So the average cost of the dinner has gone down, and it works out to what? Less than $5 per person, is that right?
5: Yeah, $4.69 per person. I I think what's pretty interesting here too, Mike, is that When we adjust for inflation, the average price of this year's Thanksgiving dinner uh, comes in at at just uh, a penny more than $18. Uh, That's the lowest level since we started doing this survey 35 years ago uh, that we've seen. It's down 30% since 1986 when we first started the survey.
1: So it's always interesting to uh, keep these numbers in perspective. Also though, what about the farmer's share of that food dollar? What's happening there?
5: Well, the, the farm share of the food dollar, you know, when we look across agriculture is around uh, 8%. Uh, that's that's after taking into consideration your production costs. Uh, but that includes the farmer's share of food at home and food away from home. And food at home, the farm share of the food dollar, uh, is closer to 13%. So, uh, we, you know, we won't know yet, um, you know, until the data comes in much later than this, Uh, how COVID and and all of the food consumption uh, at grocery stores has changed the farm share of the total food dollar.
1: All right, very good. John, thanks a lot. Have a happy Thanksgiving. You too. Thanks, Mike. Take care. John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. With that, we wrap it up for today as we kick off Thanksgiving week. Um, Appreciate you being with us. Stay safe, everyone, and hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Adams on Agriculture.